0: Right. Let's make a start then. Um, let me welcome you all to this virtual book launch of the Social Brain: The Psychology of Successful Groups. Um, my name's Sue Dobson. I'm a professor at the Business School uh, in Leadership Studies, and also have the great privilege of being academic director for the Strategic Leadership Program, um, which many of these ideas I know have uh, have, have have come from that we're, we're talking about today. It's my pleasure to chair the session and facilitate the discussion between the panel and our audience today before i introduce the speakers let me say a few words of introduction i promise you that i've read the book um not from cover to cover but i've certainly uh read it and what i found fascinating was its focus on our inherited biology and how that impacts leadership work um this point about as humans, we're designed to cope with small scale world. And we wonder why we struggle in larger organizational settings. Now, we know that leadership work is changing. And in the Oxford Strategic Leadership Programme that's so dear to our hearts on this call, uh, we talk about uh, leading in a swamp where it feels like most of leadership work is dealing with emotions, uncertainty, relationships. And we know the idea of leaders having the answers is over. There is much change, but yet there are some things um, in the way that human beings behave that are unchanging. And this book explores that with real skill and delicacy. The book cleverly for me, um, brings the science of our inherited biology together with the practice and politics of organizational life. And crucially, the book advocates leaders doing less, but understanding more. It cries out for leaders to be more curious and notice more. And in my view, the book offers those of us that lead a wealth of insights and crucially some actionable knowledge. The other strong thing about the book is the efforts that our authors make to interrogate the experience of many leaders in different organizational contexts. The book's grounded in careful and thoughtful research and analysis, and I congratulate you all on it being so well researched and analyzed and offering so many thoughtful insights. So with that opening remarks, and and, and so thank you very much for writing it is my first point. But let me introduce our, our, our speakers now in no particular order. We've got Tracy, Tracy Camilleri former director of the Oxford Strategic Leadership Programme, which, as many of you will know, is our flagship programme at the Business School in Leadership. She's co-founder of the Leadership and Organisational Development Consultancy, Thompson Harrison. She's an Associate um, Fellow of the Saïd Business School and is well-renowned and skilled in her leadership design programme work more generally. So welcome, Tracy, And followed very um, quickly by Sam, Sam Rocky, also the co-founder of Thompson-Harrison, also an Associate Fellow of the Side Business School uh, and works on the Strategic Leadership Program as well. And like Tracy, has a passion for designing and delivering stretching leadership development programs and a wealth of knowledge in that respect as well. And then finally, Robin, Robin Dunbar, uh, Emeritus Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Oxford, an incredibly well-respected academic, Uh, who has done outstanding research on human connection and social dynamics Um, and we look forward to hearing from all of you about the book Um, I know we're going to have a presentation now and Tracy you're going to kick us off let me remind our audience though if you've got there is a chance to uh, ask questions as we go along so do feel free to put your questions in the question and answer box and I promise that we will get to those uh during the presentation after the presentation rather tracy over to you
1: thanks so much sue uh it's great to be here and thank you all for joining as well i know some of you are alumni from the oxford strategic leadership program what we're going to do over the next 45 or so minutes is i'm going to talk a little bit up front about why we think the book is important now why did we write it Robin's going to talk a bit more about the science behind um, behind the, the the book and um, his lifetime of research, and as Sue says, you know um, what doesn't change about human behaviour. And Sam's going to talk a bit about the practice. You know how how do you put some of this into practice and draw on some of the examples and cases that we highlight in the book. So, uh, you know, just a little bit about us, Sue's very kindly introduced us. Um, I met Sam and Robin about 10 years ago. And um, what struck me at the time was all three of us were grappling with a similar question, which is, you know, why do some groups come together and actually end up as more than the sum of their parts? Uh, And why do some groups Clever, capable, actually bring one another down, and all three of us were wrestling with this question from sort of different perspectives. Sam had been the head of leadership in a in a large global organisation, and really thinking about the dynamics of of big businesses, about the politics and the pushes and the pulls. Robin had been, um, as I say, looking at our underlying psychology and biology about what doesn't doesn't change. And I've been, uh, you know, with Sue in the business school, designing and directing leadership programs. And I suppose my laboratory, if I just tell my own story, my laboratory was, you know, sort of around a week bringing together some friendly strangers, um, people who were often exhausted from overwork and sometimes jet lag, people who had extraordinary mastery in in lots of different ways. They felt the pull, the digital pull of, you know, uh, uh, what was going on in the office while they were spending a week in Oxford. And so my big challenge was, how do you create a sense of high curiosity for those people? How do you create create a sense of the tribe uh, of connection? How do you create trust and fast track that? And how can you do something in five days that isn't just something that was nice to have, but had real impact beyond? And over the years started to think and this is something that um, Sam and I do as well in our programs think about how we could work as as social designers, if you will, and we began to learn what works and what doesn't. You know, um, those of you who've been on the program, you know, on the first day um, that the cultural museum that we did, you know, actually getting people to tell stories about themselves to strangers very early on um, really brought people together. Thinking really, really. Analytically about meals. Uh, so we'd always begin with uh, a curry or a family size sharing meal where people had to pass things around. And uh, Robin would say that the spice in a curry uh, actually creates more endorphins, which are the so- social hormones that bring us together. Those of you who are on the uh, strategic leadership program will remember that little lip of fear uh, when you work with Peter Hanker in, in the um, in the chapel and actually shared you know acute fear is 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 not good but a little bit of fear of going out uh, of the comfort zone sharing an experience together is uh is hugely bonding uh or, or actually some of you will remember having to produce a poem as well that again is 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 a fearsome act for some people and the experiential nature of working you know together walking in in the park uh synchrony again is another hugely important um bonder. so we started to really play with um that those kinds of things and, and and act as social designers. how do you put together a successful tutor group for example, and we also played with scale um there was one time a couple of times actually that We thought well why not make you know this is all great we're enjoying it why not make the group bigger and we were really fascinated by the fact that the group split into two um and we wondered is there you know we've only changed the numbers by about four or five what's going on here and those sorts of questions uh led the three of us uh to come together um and and write write this book wasn't just us though uh we spent a lot of time interviewing wonderful leaders around the world leading in all sorts of different areas so that we could incorporate their stories their practice their examples into the book we didn't want to write a theoretical tome that no one uh that no one picked up um so the first face you see there, Ramatu, actually had been on the strategic leadership program and she had the difficult job of leading a um, a supply chain in the biggest state in Nigeria oh, yeah. during a pandemic. And the stresses of, of leading that team under that kind of pressure were hugely enlightening for us what she did. Um, there's a surgeon there who leads a very tight team under extreme pressure, how do you reach out for for an instrument and know that the person handing it to you (laughs) will hand you the right thing? How do you get that sense of trust in a team? Owen Eastwood there, um, who is the cultural coach for many sports teams, and really thinks about culture and how you create a sense of belonging and inclusion. Uh, We talked with Clara, who's uh, a designer, about creativity and how you foster and help creativity in teams. Um, And, you know, a vast number, we've got CEOs in there, conductors, some faces may be uh, familiar to some of you. Klaus there, who talks about the importance of playfulness, of playing together, of laughing together and sharing a sense of humour um and with activist yoga in there uh, an entrepreneur who talked about as her business grew um that sense of absolute exhaustion of holding it all in mind and holding an increasing number of relationships in mind and and what she what she did about it um and you know i i could go through i could go through them all there's uh tyrone Erch, who's a general in the army And he talks about how the small pivotal fire teams of only five people and how sharing exposure, sharing fear together meant that they were so tight and trust was so high in those teams and gave us several examples of that. So we bring these stories into the book. So why why write it now? We also thought it was a very interesting moment and a difficult moment in many ways a moment where people were rethinking the structures and rhythms of work and that slide is supposed to represent a screen and many of us even though we use the the phrase post-pandemic many of us are still working In a hybrid way and goodness how magical is it i mean here we all are um, and you are around the world listening to this there's something absolutely magical about us being able to connect virtually but many of you will be familiar with studies for example like the microsoft trends index that showed how prolonged period of time connecting virtually actually narrows our networks and dilutes our relationships we are profoundly relational beings we need human relationship we need that analog face-to-face world and without it we, we actually suffer so the challenge we believe for leadership right now is to get the best of both worlds and certainly some of our clients are you know stamping their feet and thinking you know get back in the office now everybody that's the rule some are thinking actually the flexibility of the hybrid world is brilliant for some people and we need to to think about how we can have a coherent coherent design um we were speaking to one um one management consultant the other day who said you know we're having drinks every friday night to try and get the young people back into the office but they just turn up for the drinks (laughs) not for the fridays um so this you know how do we earn the commute how do we actually adapt our offices to be places as well that people want to come to and crucially when we do bring people together um, in person how do we make it matter how do we make it count how do we make it not that everyone's in the office but they're still all on screens because some people are in some people are out how do we actually create environments where trust discretionary effort social capital and crucially and and robin will go on to talk about this crucially friendship can happen because um those are, incredibly important for successful businesses and in fact any team whether you're in government whether you're leading a sports team all those things are important so we examine those questions in our book right at the end of the book we interviewed the great historian theodore zeldin um, who wrote history of the french people and so on and he he said to us, Well, what are you doing? I mean, what is the point of business? And he said, Can we not have more experiments to offer something better to young people? And isn't that the ultimate purpose of organizations? And we really thought about that. And we thought about this moment. Um, you know, either we go back to what we were doing before COVID, which frankly didn't work. Or we see this moment as a moment to reimagine and to redesign uh, the way we work and the structure of the way in which we work. And I like that word experiments. How can we offer sustained experiments to young people at Thompson Harrison? We've recently been doing some work, some research around Gen Z, and particularly the first year of work. those young people who are coming into the world of work now and you know it's a it's a really mixed picture but it's definitely a picture that requires leaders to be thinking more deeply about the experience of young people than um than perhaps they have and some some people talk about quiet quitting they're just sort of silently Giving up a little behind their screens. Um, one young man said to us, um, Well, nobody comes in on a Friday, but I do because the finance director is in on a Friday and he comes every Friday and he just asks me, How's my week been? And he said, That just makes all the difference. Uh, I spoke recently to the MBAs at the business school, and one young man said, Gosh, there was a huge amount of care and precision. And attention in hiring me. And I was really, really impressed. And once I'd been hired, this was his job before he started the MBA, he said, I just felt I was abandoned. I didn't know what I'd been hired into. I didn't have a sense of belonging or sustained connection. And so um, this is another thing we look at in our book is um, you know, how can we think about sustained experiments that that offer something offer something better? And the other thing to think about is not only performance and environments for innovation, environments for impact, but also you know the epidemic of, of loneliness and mental health. Some of you may have seen the recent study by Sapiens Lab that came out, I think last week. Uh, it's a study of almost half a million people over 64 countries. And one shocking thing that came out was that if you're aged 18 to 24, you are five times more likely than your grandparents' generation to suffer from some kind of mental health issue. Um, And we went back and looked at the definition of well-being um, by the World Health Organization back in the 50s, and it is a state of complete physical, mental and social health. And one of the things all three of us felt was that there's been a, a huge attention to physical and mental health. I think $50 billion it is spent uh, per year on, um, on well-being um, in organizations, you know, from apps and bots and yoga and all kinds of things that are very good, but focused at individuals. But the focus on social health has been lacking the social relational health. And Robin will say, you know, if you want to give up smoking, uh, find a friend uh, who doesn't smoke, it's the best way to do it. And, you know, our friends and the number of friends we have are the best uh, indicators of um, our future physical health and as well as mental health. So there's another side to our book, which is looking at um, this as being a moment to think more broadly and more socially and more relationally about wellbeing. And just finally, you know, as this uh, this ends my bit, by the way, if you're getting sick of my voice, but um, just to think that this is a moment as well where people are thinking about the shape of their organizations. We're really fascinated by how some big uh, companies are thinking about that that sort of traditional pyramidal uh, shape that we have in the back of our minds that are somehow echoed by our org charts feels brittle it feels like it doesn't work in a complex system which is uh where we all work uh where change comes from the bottom it comes from the edge love this line by van gogh life is probably round and yet we are all round pegs working in in um in in square holes or pyramidal holes or whatever and in our book we explore different ways of thinking about the shapes of organization um fractals honeycombs lattices more relational more agile more able to adapt less brittle more human in the end um and so um that leads me to hand over to Robin to talk a little bit more about the science behind what we've written about.
2: Okay, thank you, Tracy. Um, so, I'm going to um, really put in place, I guess, uh, something of the science that, that sits behind this book. Um, I'd been working on um, the evolution of societies in, in monkeys and apes originally, and then perhaps the last 20, 25 years, uh, the equivalent in humans. Um, and I'd begun to think that, well, a lot of this stuff that we're seeing in everyday life um, as how we live, as it were, as, as social beings, must have implications for the world of business because the world of business, at the end of the day, is a social world, it, It's uh, it requires people to talk to each other and engage with each other and do things together and uh, how well they do that um, in a way it seems obvious must go better and be more efficient if they actually function as a village if you like uh, or as a tribe um, and have um, genuine friendly relationships so this is a consequence in many ways of our evolutionary history of the species um here there's a sort of notional brain if you like uh pointing to various bits that are important in the context of of this story um part the need to be in 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 groups we are intensely social as a species and of course at least until until lockdown uh, we probably spent more than half our uh, week um waking hours of the week Uh, at work, um, rather than any other context. So it's a natural place in which some of our social friends, part of our social network is going to be in that context. So it's a sort of, the world of work is not a world of strangers by any means. Um, So there's that natural requirement as it were to to be in a a social environment and one that works smoothly. Part of that is, is a reflection of Um, The size of key bits of our brain, the neocortex in particular, but also um, uh, the way the brain manages uh, social relationships in particular, the hormonal underpinnings of that. Um, A lot of that is about uh, bonding and bonding is very time consuming, um, involves a lot of uh, hard work on our part, but time is limited um, in the day and uh, although a lot of our um, social time or a lot of our time is devoted to uh the social world we we have to think very carefully about how we allocate it so that all these things come together in terms of uh influencing um both what is an ideal group to be in but also how well we work within it okay sam uh so the, the, The core to this really is what's become known as Dunbar's number, which is, for a very quick definition, simply the number of relationships, meaningful relationships that you can have at any one time. This doesn't mean all the people you know by sight, by any means. This is um, people that you have real meaningful relationships and those relationships that have history. You've known them for at least some period of time. You have some sense of how they ticky if you like and why you would want to include them in your um network of of friends and and family the limit on that seems to be about 150 people um we have lots and lots of data now from all sorts of different sources uh both looking at individual people's social networks their extended social networks uh but also looking at um uh, that, if you like, is looking bottom up from your position in the world to the people around you, but also looking top down from above at the size of natural organizations. So, things like hunter gatherer community sizes, um, the size of church congregations, the, the sizes of business congregations, the sizes of military units. All these things keep producing this figure is of about 150, give or take of, of, uh, a bit around that. So something odd about this number um, that seems to, if you like, make the world go round effectively and efficiently. Now in in the normal course of of everyday life, about half of that 150 would be taken up with extended family members, um, perhaps running out to second or even third cousins maybe. Um, And about half of those would be uh, true friends in, in in the conventional sense of friendships um but but managing that uh, number um really depends on if you like the time invested in it such that there's quite a high rate of turnover there's a natural process of turnover that goes on in the course of um of our everyday lives um uh, in terms of who we are friends with and, and even this extends to family members uh, we fall out of favor with with some and we fall into favor with others to put some numbers around that, the, the movement in the friendship circles of eighteen to twenty-five-year-olds is very high indeed. About forty percent of their network members change position every year, so it's a terribly dynamic process. It, it, it um, is much slower uh, from about the thirties onwards. It stabilizes uh, really quite quite considerably, um, but. You know, it is a fluid and a dynamic process. as so our needs and wants and interests change. Okay, next please, Sam. So, if you look at uh, this figure of 150, it actually consists of, it turns out, and we didn't know this, and, uh, and when we started working on these kind of things, uh, consists of a series of circles. So, your social world looks a bit like the diagram on the right there. You are ego in the center. Uh, the Latin for, for for I or me, um, uh, um, and you are surrounded by these layers of relationships. And these layers of relationships have very, very specific sizes. So there's an inner layer of 1.5, which is the average number of intimate uh, relationships you have roughly. And then there's a layer of five, uh, a layer of 15, 50, and you get out to 150. And then, as we now know, there are these numbers continue up beyond that. Uh, there's a layer of 500, 1500. And the outermost layer is at 5000, which is actually differentiates between people you've actually seen before, even if it's only a photograph and complete strangers, uh, so the total number of uh, pictures of faces you can have in your, your um, mind at any one time is about 5000. Beyond that, it's completely anonymous. So the inner core layers, though, uh, from the 150 down to let's say the five, essentially play different roles in, in our lives. So the the inner core five of the what we sometimes call the um, support uh, clique or the shoulders to cry on friends, they're the people who are, will you know, drop everything to come and uh, pick you up when your world falls apart, and they're very important in our, our lives. And in fact, it's that Particular circle of relationships, friendships, that has a huge effect on our mental and physical health and well-being, as Tracy mentioned earlier. Um, the single best predictor of your health and well-being, both psychologically and physically, uh, is the number uh, and quality of those close friendships that you have. And there's an optimum at about five. And this raises, in this context, quite an important and serious point, I think, for business organisations, in the sense that if people don't have that layer, whether it be at work or at home, then their susceptibility to depression uh, and other um, uh, ill states uh, of um, ill mental states, and indeed their susceptibility to um, the kinds of everyday diseases which healthy people would just shrug off um uh to quite serious uh diseases is greatly increased dramatically so and that means time off work or if they're not off work they're working at half measure so there are real meaningful consequences for for organizations i think in in if you like not catering to uh these needs uh that uh we all have um okay uh next please um now uh the the mentioned earlier and tracy mentioned earlier that these relationships are very costly in terms of uh the time you have to invest in them Uh, your brain as it were your neocortex is working very hard to kind of manage them but you don't have any of these relationships at all if you don't invest time and indeed the the layering structure that you get is actually directly a consequence of the amount of time that we invest in uh, the individuals in our social social network. And we pick this up, not only in in face-to-face diary type data of real life interactions, but we pick it up in phone call data sets, we pick it up in Facebook posting data sets uh, and with exactly the same frequencies. So each of those layers corresponds to a very specific frequency of interaction, the inner core of five, uh, people you see each of them on average about uh yeah. uh, um, uh at least once that's a week cool. um at, and that has to be kept up uh, you know you obviously have to start off building the relationship but that that frequency of interaction has to be kept kept up as a result of that 40 percent of our total social time and that's something like three hours a day is devoted to those five people in the center they get a lot of our attention Another 20% is is devoted to the 15 people outside that um, so that this this 60% figure here comes from. Um, uh, those two layers 15 people are getting 60% of your your attention and your mental and uh, time effort in, in invested in building bonds with them, so the actual process of uh, building uh, bonds, then is both very time consuming, but absolutely crucial to maintaining uh, the um, efficiency and effectiveness of, of those relationships. Okay, next, please. Uh, uh, and this brings me around then to the processes that are involved in bonding. Um, this comes in in two separate levels that kind of work in tandem with each other uh, in the brain, as when I mean. they're using two different parts of the brain. Um, the, basic underpinnings of of friendship and uh, close relationships in all monkeys and apes and in humans is the endorphin system in the brain. A lot of the things we do uh, trigger the endorphin system and activate it. And the more it's activated, uh, the stronger a a relationship it creates, because what it does is create a sense of calmness and uh, trust and warmth and, and all's well with the world with the person you engage in these activities. And and what we use in everyday life, uh, in addition to the kind of um, what's now called soft touch, social touch, sort of caresses and pats on the shoulder and hugs and these kinds of things that we all do, which is essentially the primate way of, of doing this. In the course of our evolution of species, we've added onto that other ways which allow us to trigger the same endorphin system in the brain um Which incidentally is part of the pain management system of the brain, um, which is perhaps why it works the way way it does and produces the sensations it does. Uh, but what we found is other ways of triggering that system without actually physically having to touch somebody, and therefore we can do it with many people simultaneously because touch is so intimate; it, it limits who, how many people you can do it with. And those things are essentially laughter, singing, dancing. Um, the rituals, of religion, feasting, eating and drinking uh, socially uh, as a group, and lastly, s- storytelling. It turns out that telling uh, happy stories or tragic stories uh, trigger the endorphin system in the brain because yeah, we feel psychological pain, as in hearing about some uh, tragedy, some drama, as it were, in exactly the same places in the brain as we feel um, physical pain. So it, fix in the endorphin system so those become very important in building relationships and next the reason we have those is primarily to sort of build out beyond the limits of 150 and allow us to create mega communities out beyond to 500 1500 and so on Um, and indeed you know they are exploited in real everyday life to build uh, mega communities of the kind we have with nation states and, and and so on the other half of the story is stuff that's going on in the brain these are what we call the seven pillars of friendship there is seven, essentially a kind of supermarket barcode you have except instead of being written, stamped on your forehead you actually speak them uh, and this is because they're cultural they identify who you are as a person and the kind of community you come from the kind of things you like and and don't like and these we're very sensitive to and pick up on very very quickly uh if you if you uh, and there are things like dialect you hear somebody's dialect uh immediately you know um where they come from and that's to say if they're from your own uh town or village uh you know you've got a bond already with them you know you've trod the same uh, streets as they have you have drunk in the same pubs as they have even if you might not have done it at the same time it's a pointy connection there and then the other things that are things like um, um uh, career trajectory um uh, your moral and political and and uh, religious views your worldview as you, if you like your hobbies and interests and the two interesting ones um which always uh, surprised everybody and they surprised us originally when we first came across them uh, is the um uh, your musical taste and your sense of humor and these turn out to be very very good uh bases for creating friendships with strangers if, if you uh share the same musical interest or share the same sense of humor it, uh, it allows you to form very quickly um uh, relationships friendships with strangers okay so i think um that takes me to the end of my time and it's over to sam
3: thank you so much um so one of the challenges um of the book was how to integrate the science the art um the conversations that we had with the, the people that tracy mentioned right at the beginning and put it into something really pragmatic for leaders to use back in their organizations um, and i'm going to take you through three ideas um our book has many more but for today and um, i know that many of you are in um, leadership roles is w- what what could you use from our book that would be really helpful um as you go back into the workplace um so i'm going to touch on three things the first is a model we call the thrive model um the second is around thinking about a social strategy, um, and then how do you match team size to team task? What might that look like um, in very pragmatic ways? Um, So I'd like to begin with the Thrive model. Um, As Robin has alluded to, work is nothing more than a collection of social groupings, um, and then applying the principles of what really makes humans thrive. um, What are the things that get us out of our beds in the morning and go off into work either to our desk and to our zoom or actually into a workplace how can we feel motivated how can we feel that we really want to contribute to the direction of the organization um so we've pulled together six key themes that are Absolutely consistent across all humans um, operating in groups. Um, And of course, if you're working in a small group of five people, um, as Robin was saying, these things would occur naturally, actually. So you would feel a sense of connection, you'd feel seen by. Uh, the other members of your small group, you have to work less hard at creating the conditions for thriving. They exist. So um, our model looks at how do you amplify across great numbers of um, of, of, of uh, people? How do you amplify across scale? Um, and we, we looked at sort of six areas. Um, the first is really around connecting So, as Robin said, what what are the ways that we release endorphins, a sense of well-being with our fellow human, Um, how can you put that in the workplace, how can you create a sense of belonging, Um, for us, we really feel that belonging is one of those things that when you have it, um, it's something that really encourages you to participate and bring your full self um, into a group, into the workplace. Um, And there's been a lot that's been written on belonging. Owen Eastwood talks a lot about it. Um, He's spoken on the OSLP in the past, actually. What are the small gestures of belonging? Um, How do you make sure that everybody in the group feels a sense of shared values? These could be unwritten rules. These could be principles. But what are the things that everybody has um, in common, really? And we know that when groups share values, there is a a greater sense of, of connection and commitment to uh, in a sense a shared a shared future and that brings us to purpose for as long as humans have have been in operating in small groups together they've always felt a need to connect to something that's much bigger than themselves um, and we see this kind of idea of articulated purpose as being a really important part of group thriving um, and it also means people are purposeful so what is the contribution you make towards um, the organization that you're part of culture the consistency of culture tracy speaks so beautifully of what's uh of the culture of the oslp which is sort of started right from the minute people join to when they when they leave and on going. Actually, I know that many people um, on this this webinar have been on the OSLP. You'll you'll have felt a sense of what those consistent behaviors and practices are. Um, And being a contributor to the culture as well. Every new person who comes on the program contributes to the future sense of the uh, program's culture. And then finally, learning. Um, We we are hardwired to learn, actually, um, in our diagram of the brain you would have seen that one of our human gifts is learning from each other there's nothing more powerful than learning from your peers um, learning from other people's shared experiences hearing a story actually that we can all sit back and think gosh I've been in a similar situation is incredibly empowering um so our thrive model we talk a lot about it in our book but how can it be used back in your organization to really contribute to um, performance innovation and impact Um, And we use examples from from organizations that have thrived over over many years, decades even, um, in some cases, centuries, actually, because they've applied some of these absolutely fundamental principles to the way that they do business, um, reeling all the way back to the fact that we are social animals who really enjoy being part of social groups. The second piece that um, I think is our contribution to the conversation about team performance, actually, Um, we've done a lot of work in team performance over many years, but one of the things that is often um, not really pulled on is how teams are designed in terms of task and team size. So thinking about how you design your team to optimally deliver a task, I think, is one of the real kind of new ways of thinking about how you think about your team. And I'm just going to draw on one very small example. Um, Let's take a group of five. Um, Fives are incredibly effective at fast decision making. Um, We were working with a client yesterday who spoke about the fact that there are so many people who come to every single team meeting and end up having only two or three people talk in the meeting and contribute to decision. I mean, the amount of wasted time the loss of productivity, the sense of not being part of something is enormous. How could you be much more deliberate about designing every single one of your um, team meetings, your team structures to really match the task that needs to be done? Um, And what Robin hasn't spoken about today, but we do talk about in the book, is it's so difficult to break up with people. It's not an easy thing, but sometimes you have to break up with people to get the right team configuration, um, and, and it's difficult. Um, so how how can one do that? Breaking up is hard to do, especially in the workplace. Um, and then the third area that I want to touch on is this idea of a social strategy. Um, we can't leave these things to chance. Tracy spoke about the um, what the you know the World Health Organization describes a sense of of kind of human thriving as being physical mental but of course it's also social and friendship doesn't happen just by chance um we spend a lot of time at work we spend a lot of time with people at work um we're great fans of friendship um we know that friendship at work contributes to performance we have some fantastic case studies in our book about how that works but you have to make the time to build friendships um it takes about 200 hours to to make a new friend um so In a sense, for workplaces to be places where friendships can thrive, where real connection can thrive, where people can feel seen, organizations need to really think about that in a strategic way, much as they would do about finance strategy or marketing strategy. Um, You know, something as simple as bringing people together over lunch in a canteen. I worked for a global FTSE top 10 company for many years no matter where you were in the world and we we had offices um, and and manufacturing sites all over the world is there would always be a canteen an opportunity for people to come together over lunch and share a meal Um, it's often the first thing to go but honestly the benefits um, of having a place of communal eating I think can't be overstated Um, and then finally it's cognitively hard work to spend time in relationship, to be focusing on relationship. It's exhausting, actually, sometimes. Sometimes you just think, let me just get back to my task. Um, some of you might even be doing this on this call. <laughs> um, but so actually, it's it's not the soft and fluffy stuff. It's the difficult stuff. It's the demanding stuff, but it's the important and powerful stuff. Um, and our book, um, as Sue said right at the beginning, is really well researched around why making time to think about a social strategy, making time to think about creating these opportunities for connection is, is the way that humans thrive and organizations thrive. I'm going to ask Tracy to do a quick sum up.
1: Go heard. Thank you. Yes, I'm conscious of time and please do put any questions we'd love them in the in the box if you've got any for us. Um, Nothing comes for free in biology. Um, We said at the beginning, you have to work with and the and against the grain of our biology and our psychology. Um, And, you know, not everything about being human is good, you know, we will free ride given half the chance if we don't feel uh, we're being observed. And as Robin said, that 150 is the point at which reciprocity and obligation shifts into the more transactional. So if you're part of a very, very big organization, it's easier to free ride in a way. And and thinking about that, we are homophilic to some extent, we are attracted by um, by people who share our pillars of friendship, and there is time, many of you listening to the call are leaders, where we need to disrupt that homophily to bring in difference to in order to make better decisions, and have more diverse groups. Um, You know, all like organizations are clusters of social groupings quite often we hide behind the idea that the organization won't allow us to do this, or it's not what we do here it's just us in the end and we can in this moment of redesign of rethink of reimagine actually do more interesting more human and more productive things Um, remember our gifts our constraints and our constants quite often organizations inadvertently interfere with our gifts interfere with you know our propensity and our capacity to think about the future to imagine to uh do all kinds of things that machines can't do and yet we also ignore our constraints we behave as if time is totally unbounded and as if we can have as many friends as you know you know, (laughs) grains of sand on the beach. We are constrained. We do have gifts. And there are things that are constant. And one of those is that need to be known and to know. Sam talked about the six foundational conditions to thriving teams. We noticed in our research that the best and most thriving teams actually held those in a kind of balance. And the leaders were focused on creating environments rather than coming up with policies, answers, solutions. Um, The practice of leadership alters as scale alters, probably don't have time to say much about that. That was fascinating for us, how leadership practice changes as scale changes. And and we deal with that in our book or um, on LinkedIn, I just actually did a little tiny film about that if anyone's interested. Um, Sam's talked about team size and task, and, and finally, this need for a social strategy uh, with the same kind of rigour, the same kind of application that we spend hours and hours and hours in C-suites thinking about financial strategy, marketing strategy, digital strategy. This is the moment to bring the same kind of rigour and the same kind of focus and attention to having a social strategy in order that the organisations and the teams that we leave lead can thrive
0: okay thank you very much to uh, our presenters there for that very elegant uh summary of the book um we've got some questions Um, uh, robin i'm conscious you've got to leave us at some point to, to do another lecture um so can i ask you the first question if i may um and it's from keith herman how can new young employees and organizations build a sense of belonging when they're a stranger looking in when they're not part of the organization given their lack of social networks over to you robin
2: um, well, I actually think this is probably one of the uh, biggest um, issues of the day, in many ways, it's much bigger than lockdown or anything like that, because it's been going on long, um, at least the last two decades. There's been this pandemic of loneliness in uh, um, new young uh, starters, um, mainly because they're moving away from uh, home and university environments where they've had already made social world there on the plate for them and going to a city where they don't know anybody they don't know where to go to meet people that's uh safe and suitable um and the only people they know are the people at work who obviously already have uh well-established networks and homes to rush back to at five o'clock so you know you end up with a lot of people who have become very dispirited i guess and very disillusioned and of course then become susceptible to um uh uh, depression and and physical diseases, in the way I mentioned it, it, earlier. Um, so the problem is, how do you engage them? And I, I think that is probably something that needs to be given a lot of attention. But it's about creating the kinds of environments in the workplace that allow people to engage socially with each other uh, and, and to speed. Well, I, you know if you wait long enough they will eventually bed in and form friendships um uh but what you want to do is is to find ways of speeding that up and uh, you know there are people have uh done engaging kinds of things like that I, I might mention two very very quickly um and they both come from Sam actually so I probably ought to let her tell these stories rather than me but but one is singing um a lot of Hospitals and similar kinds of organisations have set up choirs and have found them very, very beneficial in creating a sense of bonding and belonging and commitment uh, in the people that attend. And this is what uh, uh, Sam uh, provided us with a very nice example of that in, uh, in her uh, earlier life, as it were. Um, singing is a great bonder. It, we we always refer to this as the icebreaker effect because you can turn complete strangers into lifelong. Friends who've known each other since kindergarten um, just with an hour's community singing. And I don't mean, you know, sort of Bach cantatas and the like. I just mean Gareth Malone round the campfire community singing. It, it's absolutely magical. And the other is, is um, what S.A.B. Miller did when, when Sam worked for them. They, they had a, a bar, a pub, literally, in their foyer of, of, of all the uh, uh, factories and, uh, and campus buildings um you know where people would just gather casually to uh, have a quick beer at the end of work before they go home um and you know that those kind of casual opportunities uh to meet people and and, and uh, get to know other people from other departments um breaks enormous ice. and i think if i i quote sam correctly here but she correct me if i'm wrong is some of the facebook uh groups that were set up out of those um social environments at SAB Miller two decades down the line are still going and the people in them work now in different parts of the world for different companies so so it is there are things you can do what we have to do is to sit down and look very carefully at what will work in the contemporary modern world where where people obviously have outside interests to go to as well try and find something that will work in the context of your particular organization but i don't know if sam wants to add to that she's the expert on this
3: no i think well well described robin
0: okay great let me have another question then i think before you go robin this is probably one for you which resources would you recommend to get a deeper insight about the neurophysiology about group dynamics i think that's just can i read some more please and then we'll move on to the next question if you can answer that before i know you have to go okay
2: um they want to know how this stuff works is is that the question?
0: Yeah, which resources? Yeah, okay. yeah something to okay. read, I think. Yeah. And then we can
2: um... I, I I can only recommend my um, immediately uh, preceding book, which is just called Friends, the um, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships. And it's all in there.
0: There you go. Thank you, well, Sir Frederick, okay. and... very good for that. I know you've got to go, right. Robert.
2: Right. Um,
0: let me ask uh, another question from Peter Sear. Um, do you think human beings are not designed for large corporations? is it that the bigger the corporation, the worse we treat each other and customers? So interesting question here from Peter. Thank you, Peter.
1: Shall I begin and then, um, so, Peter, yeah, it's a good, we we really looked hard at that. And it's what we mentioned before that at around 150, it's this moment where people say it's that beyond 150, where the weird stuff happens. It's the stand on a chair number and it's the number at which, you know, obligation, reciprocity, relationship, if you will, tips over into the more transactional. Now, does this mean that you can't thrive in large organizations? absolutely not but there is something about um the conceptual way that we think about how they are organized and that need within those big organizations to have smaller units to have smaller units of identity and 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 connection and i think that's what I was trying to get at when I talked about sort of fractals and lattices and and honeycombs, that sense that, yes, we're contained within a huge organization with a similar kind of purpose and set of values and principles, tight principles, loose rules often. Um, There's devolved and distributed leadership, but there is a sense of belonging that comes from being held in mind and being known. I mean, I think large corporations often anonymize people within them you know they are human resources and and there's a necessity to it sometimes but that does need to be smaller units of identity Sam, okay, you. you Sam
3: do you want to add yeah just one quick thing in our thrive model we talk about values and and that partly comes from the organizations that we looked at in our book and uh, two that spring to mind is Gore and Mars both huge organizations but what uh what they have running through them uh, is a strong kind of sense of values and principles that have come from in a sense their founders Um, and these are are almost a century old both of them so there is something about very large organizations having as Tracy says a kind of holding idea to them but one of those seems to be this kind of sense of a collective coming together around principles that have been in place for a very long time um, for those older organizations and certainly a recommendation for Startups um, and Tracy's spoken recently to a group of, of small business owners. Is you know, what are those core principles that you'd want to put in place that can get replicated as you scale up?
0: Great, okay. Well, I think we've got time for a couple more questions. David Grossi here talks about as well as the positive power of closed teams, are there downsides to be aware and managed of in groups, out groups? So, close
1: teams and group think. Any comments on that? Absolutely, it's a great question. And, um, you know, as we said, nothing comes for free. The fact is, we've been very interested in the edges of all this. And of course, belonging, it's kind of a no brainer, we need to feel we belong, but extreme cultish, inward looking group think exclusionary behavior is is destructive and it's the same with everything you know if i only work with a group of friends i don't want to work with anyone else it's destructive and i think that's where you know leadership comes in leadership working with and against the grain sometimes ruffling our our complacency sometimes disturbing natural clusters all the time you know it's a it's a it's a a moving in standing back it's 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 um but you're absolutely right um there is a downside to all of this in excess but it is a moment we believe where actually we need more of it rather than less okay great thank you um let me just ask
0: the last question sam maybe you can take this one from max um really insightful how do we encourage our teams to keep the balance between a high-paced world with stretched targets and the need to develop social relationships if we can have a 30-second answer on that sam no pressure Oh, well, sure
3: um well i think in a way our our view would be that begin with the connection begin with the things that create the thriving environment begin with the sense of people feeling like they belong to something um, and then the high-pressured high-performing environment follows um, so if we start with creating environments for thriving um, the, the, the the benefit is huge um, so perhaps flip it and spend more time on the social strategy um, and yeah, the tasks might take care of themselves. Well, certainly in our book, we talk a lot about the power of incidental learning and innovation that comes from those, those moments where you're not focused on the task, but you're just connecting. Um, I don't know if that answered the question in 30 seconds. There you go. Well, that's all we've got time
0: for, I think. We have come to the end of our time. Uh let me thank uh, you all for um, sharing with us this exciting uh, adventure and this new, this, this new book. And also thank you, of course, who've, uh, who've actually been our audience today. And it, it's just wonderful, isn't it, to see how the Strategic Leadership Program, a program that we all love, and, and we, we see people transformed on that journey, how actually that group of people and beyond the other leaders that we all work with, Are now shaping, you know, the kind of work that you've just been sharing with us. So it's a wonderful win-win situation. But thank you, Tracy, Sam, and Robin, wherever he's gone to, for a a wonderful sort of uh, seminar. And thank you all very much for joining. Take care, all. Thank Thank you. Thank you for joining. Yeah, thanks for joining. Take care. Bye. Bye.